0: Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! This is the closest I'm going to get to any of you at Christmas, so this is our Christmas. Brittany and I are going to Arizona next, uh, tomorrow. It's our year to go to her family for Christmas, so, um, I pray, we'll pray for each of every one of you, at least as many as I can recall. The ones I see most often, I pray most for. <laughs> just, just a little there if it helps you, uh... I'll pray for you on Christmas. Um, We will be together in spirit. But this is our, as a family, this is our Christmas. We had a feast, and now we have the next feast. As we're going to look at our final Advent message, um, the theme has been, do you believe I can do this? And as Richard just prayed, um, with all of us, yes, we believe, but help our unbelief. That has been the theme. How do we believe that God can do this? We, We don't dare define what this is lest we limit what God wants to do. So how do you prepare for that? You prepare by preparing your heart to receive him. So we've we've looked at this cycle of, I believe which puts me in God, and then I receive God which puts him in me. There's this mutual indwelling as we believe and receive. And that's what Advent is about It's about preparing our hearts to receive the promise to come. And it has come, and we must now be ready to do that which he is going to do. So, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 again. Luke chapter 1. We have, do you believe I can do this? We have, I'm not asking if you believe I can do this. Do you believe Brandon can get this message done in less than an hour? Bets are being taken now. we have looked at examples of those who have prepared their hearts to receive. We started with David in Psalm 25. He prepared his heart by waiting well. And in that Psalm 25, we saw David confessing sin, that's confession, and asking God to guide him, direction. We wait, we, receive our, we prepare our hearts to receive by confessing our sins and asking for direction in life. It starts there. We must empty ourselves of the gross stuff so that we can receive the power of Christ. Second, we went to Genesis 18 and looked at Abraham and Sarah. We prepared with Abraham and Sarah and saw that they prepared their hearts to receive God's power by communing with God. The three visitors, the three-in-one trinity, came and dined with Abraham and we looked at communing with God as preparing our hearts. And then last week, we prepared with Zachariah and Elizabeth and saw that it was faithful devotion. Their faithfulness through all the years of disappointment and seemingly being overlooked by this, the blessings that were supposed to come on them because they were keeping the law uprightly, it says. Luke says they were righteous in the law, and yet they were barren. And yet they continued with faithful devotion and that prepared their hearts for the unthinkable when God said, now is the time when you had finally given up, Zechariah, now is the time. And so barely were they able, (laughs) were they there to receive what God was going to do. So now our final stage is we're going to prepare with Mary. We're going to prepare with Mary because like Abraham and Sarah, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary was visited by an angel and told the impossible. If Abraham and Sarah thought it was impossible at 90 and at 99 years old to have a child, if Zechariah and Elizabeth in a similar situation thought it was impossible for them to heed Gabriel's message that a child would be born, then how much more should Mary find impossible The message that you're going to have a son. Oh, I know. It was hard for the old folks to believe that they could have a son in their old age. You're almost too young. And more than that, you have never known, hear the euphemism, a man. Mary was ready, though. How did Mary prepare? Mary is the climactic model an example for us in preparing our hearts to receive what God is going to do. She received with less resistance than Abraham, Sarah, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, and with more improbable power. How does Mary do this? So we, with Mary, are going to prepare our hearts by opening them. She had an open heart. We will have an open heart. So let's read the passage And then we will dive right in. Luke 1, verse 26. This is right after Zechariah got the message from Gabriel that he would have a son. Zechariah lost his voice. Elizabeth is hiding for five months. What's she doing for five months? She could be avoiding all the scorn. You're not really pregnant, Elizabeth. Get over your fantasy. Five months later, you come out. What do you think of this? She'd be shown by then. Or, and what do you do in the hiding? I will propose. It just, the thought just came to me while I was praying over this passage. The thought just hit me. What if Elizabeth was interceding? That means praying for Mary, their relatives. Does Elizabeth have some sort of intuitive sense that Gabriel is announcing the forerunner in her womb and therefore the Christ will be announced very soon? Does she somehow suspect that maybe it's her own, I don't know the relation, niece, perhaps, relative, Mary, who maybe is the only eligible one, who, whom Elizabeth knows is living an upright and pure life? Is she perhaps praying that Mary would be ready? If so, that's an interesting first point before we can get into the text, that you and I need to intercede for each other if we want God to do His powerful work in our midst. In this upcoming year, we must intercede for each other. You must intercede for me, and that's not because I'm selfish. I'm doing something I never asked God to do. I need your prayer. I never. Okay, I'm getting this. It's gonna definitely give me an hour. I'm sorry because we're already here. We go. Um, when I first took my first baby step in the ministry, it was to lead worship. I told God, you've captivated me. It was Phil Wickham and Scott Cunningham who led worship in my youth. And they captivated me. I'm sure you can see why because now they're like recording artists and stuff. But um, I said, I want to do that. I will do that. Um, I know i got to learn how to sing and that's going to be really hard for me because I'm really shy and I don't want to sing in front of people. But I will do it to serve you, Father. Just don't make me talk in front of people. (laughs) It's always the famous last words, isn't it? Don't ever say anything like, just don't send me to Africa. It'll happen. Just careful. Um, I actually hadn't even said that. So I guess that's why I ended up in Africa singing. And I don't know. But anyways. Um, intercession. Elizabeth may be praying for Mary. I'll throw that out there throw that out there so verse 26 so now we come to the story where Gabriel really busy all of a sudden Gabriel's mentioned once in the Old Testament appears to Daniel says in 490 years the king will come the Messiah will come Gabriel doesn't show up until now does that say anything? and now Gabriel's meeting boom Zachariah boom Mary it's like a firefighter all your work at once and then you play the rest of your time there's a firefighter in our congregation. He's not here tonight, so I was hoping I was able to poke fun at him. But um, Gabriel's earning his paycheck, I guess. <laughs> so in verse 26, here we go. In the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Elizabeth's pregnancy. But here's what's interesting. Usually when you read the Kings, the Old Testament, the sixth month always referred to the amount of time into that king's reign. We saw back in verse 5 that this is the story is starting in the days of Herod, king of Judah. In chapter 2, we're going to see that there's this fancy Caesar Augustus in Rome. Okay, the political context is Herod and Caesar, but here in the gospel, in the story and kingdom we're invited to inherit and live in, we see that now the kingdom has a new time. We follow a new time as Christians, and we are now in the sixth month of the reign of god on earth not the full reign of god on earth don't mishear me but the initia- the initiation the launch of christ's kingdom when elizabeth conceived john the baptist or john the forerunner because he wasn't a baptist but i um, john the forerunner we're now in the sixth month of god's kingdom being fulfilled in our midst And now Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed. That means that her parents arranged a marriage with another man's parents, and so they were going to be married, but they weren't married yet. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, to call someone a favored one was not a normal greeting. This is a heightened greeting. From an angel to Mary, you are favored. There's something about Mary that causes Gabriel to skip the whole fear not, which is what the angels always said when they came. Too excited to be talking to Mary and knowing what's about to happen, Gabriel goes right into... Greetings, O favored one, the Lord's with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You'll notice that Mary was not troubled at the sight of Gabriel. Zachariah was. He walked into the temple. There was Gabriel. He was nervous. Mary's not nervous at the sight of Gabriel. She's nervous at what Gabriel says. This is the kind of girl we're dealing with. And yes, girl, she's 13, most people believe. She's very young. She lives in a world, excuse me, I'm going to (laughs) die. She lives in a world where it is not unexpected to see an angel. This is Mary's world. Not, oh my goodness, an angel. Mary's like, yep, an angel. What makes her nervous is that the angel talks to her now. And so, in verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now Gabriel remembered his line, Don't be afraid. Sorry I startled you there. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Now let me start over. You have found favor with God. Imagine an angel excited. Tone it down, angel. You're terrifying. The poor girl You have found favor with God. And behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, that was a Jewish expectation. Messiah would come and would take David's throne, would reign Israel's kingdom. So this is fulfillment of all prophecy, of all expectation. And in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? First, She asks a question, Zechariah asks a question, it was counted as disbelief to Zechariah. To Mary, it's not counted as disbelief. Why? Mary's question magnifies what God's about to do. Her question is opening the door for God to further glorify his purpose. If he had just been left here... All right, cool, bring it on. We would just been like, okay, cool. So Jesus came and he's the son of David and he reigned forever and ever happily ever after. No, the true mystery of what we believe, the true miracle of Christmas is about to be announced because Mary asked, how can this be since I am a virgin? The questions God loves from us are the questions that give him opportunity to magnify his essence, his glory, his power in our lives. Those are questions that people like Mary ask. By the way, I was also interested in, and I have no answer to this, but when I kept praying over this text, I could not get past this. What made Mary assume this conception was happening right there? If I was told, now I can just imagine, if I was a woman and I was told, thank you for that, if I was told you're going to conceive and I'm betrothed to Joseph, I'm just going to assume, oh, yeah, down the road when we get married, then I will conceive in the normal sense. How does Mary jump to this? Is something that's going to happen? Verse 35 The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, pause. Verse 34, I, we, I'm reading this in the English Standard. Um, I didn't look at the New King James this week, but um, I know that other translations don't say virgin, but since I have not known a man, which means virgin. But what you lose there is she's saying, I have not known a man. How can this be? God is answer or Gabriel is answering, you will know the Holy Spirit. Do you see the play here? is that you're not going to conceive through the seed of man, you're going to conceive through the Spirit of God. He will enter you like seed. The God who spoke creation into being is going to speak life into being in you. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... because this is not going to be a natural conception, therefore, the child will be born, the child to be born, will be called holy, the son of God. And right there, you enter into one of the most baffling beliefs Christianity holds. How is God, man, how is God in Christ, God yet man? And because right here, we recognize he's God, but we also recognize he's a man. 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. You might remember when we looked at Abraham and Sarah, that was the exact same line that God told Abraham and Sarah when she laughed. Is anything too hard for God? In the Greek, it's the same phrase. What Gabriel's doing is she's quoting the story of Abraham and Sarah. Nothing will be impossible with God. Look, he did it with Abraham and Sarah. He's doing it with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Therefore, Mary... Well done, you understand, nothing is impossible. From them to them, and now you, you've got it. Your heart is open to receive my power. You believe, Mary, you believe. And so we see the evidence of her belief in verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Contact now with the Son of God in Mary's womb. Holy Spirit's happening. When lepers touched Jesus, healing happened. This is the power that we see at work. 42, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that my mother of my Lord, the mother of my Lord, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary, do you believe I can do this? Oh yes, blessed is she who believed that the Lord could do this. So Mary, in verse 46, this is called the Magnificat. Um, It it means magnificence. It's because she's magnifying the Lord. That's what it means. It's just old church language that's been passed down. Uh, Every single verse, this is what you need to know, every single verse of this song that Mary sings has echoes or direct quotes from the Psalms. She's a woman steeped in praying the Psalms. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. God works in us before he works through us. If we want God to do this with us, if we want his power to work in our community and in our lives, he must work in us first. This is how God does his work. He does not just teleport, bam, in the midst of things and say, I'm just going to rearrange everything. He does it by doing it in us first, And then as we are walking in his likeness, he uses us to spread that to everyone else. By the way, the belief that God just shows up in the middle of something out of nowhere is deism. It's a belief that heaven and earth are separate and that God doesn't really work in our world. He just appears at random moments. That's not what we believe. We believe that he's always with and among us. What God does is he waits for people who open their hearts to receive his work in their lives and he works through their lives. In other words, when God becomes flesh, he, isn't, he doesn't just appear at the doorstep of a fire station and get adopted. Where did he come from? He just dropped out of heaven. He could have done that, I guess. We'll look at reasons why he didn't. Instead, he comes through a human body, Mary's body, and becomes a body through her body. That's because... God worked in Mary before he worked through Mary. So we must be open. If it's true that he won't work through us until he works in us, we have to be open. And if we're wondering why God isn't doing this or that in our world or in our community, why there's no revival, the answer is because you and I have not allowed him to work in us first. That's the way he does it. So we must open our hearts and our lives to him, but we're not. We're so closed off to God because we learned this habit, this pattern of behavior from our first mother, Eve. Eve showed us how to behave before God and we've been copying her since. Now, we can blame Adam too, but we're going to pick on Eve tonight because Adam usually gets picked on. We're going to pick on Eve tonight, because tonight we're talking about Mary, and you'll see why in a minute. When Eve sinned, and Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. They went into hiding. Hey, what happened? Oh, you know, we just hid because we're naked. Why didn't they just say, we're so sorry, we were just curious, we tried the tree, you told us not to try, and will you forgive us? Would God have just said, you did what? Out! God didn't become gracious because of Jesus. He's always been gracious. He would have forgiven them. But Adam and Eve, we've learned from our mother, this pattern of closing ourselves off to God. No, no, no. We were just, we fit a breeze, so we thought we'd go hide and cover ourselves. And then it comes out, what happened? Adam, the woman. Woman, the serpent. Serpent, <laughs> you know who I am. We are closed off to God. We started off in the fall, we started by saying, you can't see, you can't come in. And so all the ways in which Adam and Eve hid themselves, it resulted in our sinfulness, our our dehumanization. We look less like God as he created us in his image, and we look more like the brutes and beasts of the field that we now worship. But Mary models openness with God. She's called the New Eve. I want to show you three ways that she models openness with God. Uh, First is that she's called the New Eve. That's um, in a lot of the early church fathers' commentaries. I saw the New Eve show up a lot. Because here, let me just tell you what they say. This is the best way to do this. Uh, You guys are going to get a little introduction to some of the saints that we tend not to talk about because they're so old. (laughs) I did the work of reading them, so for your benefit. Here's St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 4th century. So that's the 300s. He was the bishop in Jerusalem. He says this, Though Eve, through Eve, yet virgin, early church's view of Eve was she was a virgin. There was no intercourse yet when the fall had happened. Through Eve, yet virgin, came death. Through a virgin, or rather from a virgin, must the life appear. That as the serpent beguiled Eve, so the other Gabriel might bring good tidings. So you see there, he is pitting Eve and Mary. So as Christ is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. But don't confuse that they're married. They're not married. Don't don't, don't push your metaphors too far. Justin Martyr, even earlier, he's the second century. Justin Martyr said this. He was one of the first apologists for the faith. He contended against the Greeks. He said, Eve, when she was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, not the word made flesh, the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her. Here's the great news. We don't have to follow our first mother Eve anymore. In closing ourselves off from God, we can follow Mary, who is like Eve, the mother of all living. She's now the mother of all in the kingdom of Christ in that sort of hierarchical forefather, foremother kind of a sense. So she's the new Eve. Mary also models openness with God, because second, she is theotokos. It's a Greek word that means God-bearer, or mother of God. Now, I know. People are going to start to squirm. So here's what I did in studying Mary this week. I was like, I've never looked at Mary like this before. Um, sort of like as being um, raised uh, with a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric, I learned to just avoid Mary altogether. Um, now, I understand what, I was, what was happening in my upbringing. People are, don't want us to worship Mary, and we shouldn't worship Mary. She is not God. She is not deified. But we can respect Mary, just like Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Just as we respect our mentors in Christ and our fathers in Christ, Mary is one of our mothers in Christ. And she deserves respect in the same way we look at awe with Abraham and Sarah, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, we can look at Mary the same way. Let not the Catholic Church make you squirm. That's not, that we're, that's not here. That's not here. We're looking at Mary in a real honest way. All right? So I need to say that because I, I can just, I, at least if I was you, I'd probably go, mm, never heard a sermon on Mary before. This would be interesting. Next thing we know, there's going to be an icon of Mary or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, don't squirm what, what actually happens and this is what the early church fathers are saying is that by having a proper view of Mary's role here you, you have a proper view of Christ's incarnation if we don't understand what's happening in the womb of Mary and in the life of Mary we can easily misunderstand what it means that Christ came the word, the eternal word made flesh that's why we're looking at Mary so she's called the Theotokos. That's a Greek word, mother of God, God-bearer, God-birther. Okay? That's what that means. It's used all, it's, it's been, it shows up in a lot of the earlier church writings. Um, what happens with Theotokos is understanding her as the God-mother, the God-birther, it saves us from two extremes that are not what we believe. The first extreme is the monophysists. That means, mono, one. These are people who believed that Christ came in the world in one nature and in one person. As one nature and one person. You might be thinking, what's the big deal with that? Think about this. If Christ came as one nature in one body, we are not saved. Here's why. Let me just read to you the church fathers. This is Saint Gregory of ne- uh, Nazianzus, or Gregory the Theologian, fourth century. We're going, we're going way back with all these. If anyone has put his trust in Jesus as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft. Uh, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. Here's why: for that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. That which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. So in other words, if we believe that Jesus is one nature and one person, which nature are you going to choose? Is it the nature of humanity or is it the nature of divinity? And if it's the nature of divinity, then he did not come with the human nature. And if he did not come with the human nature, then our human nature is not healed. When Christ comes, he assumes our nature with the divine nature because in the one person, he is bringing back together what Adam and Eve severed, the nature of humanity and the nature of divinity in harmony. That's why St. Gregory the theologian says, for that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. We cannot say he came in one nature as one person. He goes on to say, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of Adam's nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Let me put it, this is much simpler language, St. John of Damascus, he's the 7th century, he represents sort of the, he's the guy that wrote a summary of all of the church father's beliefs. So he's a good, like, go-to guy. He said this, if Adam obeyed of his own will and ate of his own will, surely in us, the will is the first part to suffer. Where did Adam sin first? In his will. So where is the first part of us to suffer? Our will. We want what we want, not what God wants. And if the will is the first to suffer, and the word incarnate did not assume this with the rest of our nature, then it follows that we have not been freed from sin. So in other words, if Christ did not come with the human nature, then my will to sin will never be freed from sin. It will be in bondage to sin like it has been for 2000, well, uh, all the way before Christ. So, we cannot believe in what the monophysists say, that Christ is one nature and one person. He has to be human and divine, or we are not healed. So the other extreme is the Nestorians. These are the people that preach that Christ was two natures, yay, in two persons. Whoa. Yeah. So what they actually say, and this is why I'm talking about Theotokos. Mary's the Theotokos. They say she's the Christotokos, the Christ-bearer. Why is that a problem? Isn't she the Christ-bearer? No. No. Because the word incarnate in Mary, Christ in Mary is not just Christ. He is part of the three-in-one trinity. It is God in Mary what, what Christ tokos means is that she birthed a normal human being, just a human being, who then became divine through his life. So then Jesus is one nature human, but then he becomes this other person divine through his sacrifice and obedience to God. We reject that altogether. He did not come... In other words, God is... This is not how it works. It's not man becomes God... That's not our story. That's not our belief. It's God becomes man. If Christ's life was man becoming God, I have a lot of work to do. Two more quotes from church fathers. These are all from St. John of Damascus. He says, For the Holy Virgin did not bear mere man, but true God, and not mere God, but God incarnate who did not bring down his own body from heaven, nor simply passed through the virgin as a channel, but received from her flesh of life, or received from her flesh of like essence to our own. What is he saying? Two natures, two people, believes that Christ came already in his own body and appeared in Mary's womb. That's not what happened. He came into her womb as God and became flesh from her own flesh. She was not just a conduit. She was the God-bearer. That's amazing to me that the eternal word would would draw his flesh from Mary's own womb. You'll see why that's important, I hope, as we go. John of Damascus continues The very Mother of God is. The very Mother of God, in some marvelous manner, was the means of fashioning the framer of all things. Did you hear that? Mary became the fashioner of him who framed all things. What? How does that fit? and of bestowing manhood on the God and creator of all, who, Jesus, deified the nature that he assumed. So here it is, friends. He's not two natures, two persons. He's one person, two natures. And when, when, when the eternal word enters into Mary's womb and draws from her flesh, the divinity of Christ leads the humanity of Christ so that there is a union There's a two-in-one, and that's how it works. So what we hold instead in the incarnation is not one nature in one person, not two natures in two persons, but what Theotokos shows us, Mary as the mother of God shows us, is that Christ is two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. This is why sometimes when you look at religious art, you might notice Jesus will often have two fingers shown because it is his humanity and his divinity in one person. He is bridging the gap. He's bringing the Godhead to humanity together in one person. And what he's uniting will not be separated. We're going to talk more about this in the next month. I'm super beyond ecstatic um, so you need to make sure January, you don't go anywhere. But that's another time. Um, so here's, here's what we would say as true believers holding to the ancient faith is that tr- Jesus is true God and true man. He's one person in two natures without. The natures have no separation and no confusion. So no separation and no mingling into some muddy little half-half thing. A single person, but endowed with two wills and two energies. That's great. Here's uh, Athanasius, uh, 4th century. He wrote the famous book on the incarnation. Uh, This is his creed. It says this. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the subsistence of the Father. So Jesus is of God begotten before the world, and man of subsistence with his mother, born in the world. If that doesn't make sense, you don't worry, keep listening. Perfect God and perfect man. Of a reasonable soul, that means it has a rational intellect, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God. That is so important. He's not to become one because the man somehow found union with God. It's because God found union with man. That's what he did. Christ, the eternal word, came and took on Mary's, uh, took on flesh from Mary's womb and through his divinity touched the flesh and the flesh was healed. The flesh was made into something that is united with the nature of God. That's how we say two natures that are not separated. They're, they're, they're united because the divine nature heals and comes into the human nature. Brothers and sisters, can you see the implications of this? That me right here as a mere human being, my fallen nature, can find union with the divine nature. That doesn't make me a god. That makes me healed by God. That I can now be restored in his image and walk in his likeness. This is something we cannot do. This is why it's not the story of Jesus, a man who who found union with God that's not our story either. it's about God who came and found union with humanity. So Athanasius resumes. Let me read that again, so um, yeah, no. okay, that is enough all right Council of Chal- Council of Chalcedon this is very important four fifty one a d there was a huge um, church meeting, and this is where they hammered out this is what they said who Jesus is. They said he is one and the same son, perfect in Godhead, perfect in humanity, truly God and truly human, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference between the nature is in no way removed because of the union. So in other words, because they became united, it doesn't mean that the humanity was absorbed by the divinity. They still remain distinct, yet completely united. Um, but rather, so the difference between the nature is in no way removed because of the union, but rather the peculiar property of each nature is preserved. The both, and both combine in one person and in one hypostasis. That's a fancy word for, it's untranslatable really in English. It's sometimes translated person. So there you go. So in one person. And then finally, 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 uh, St. John Damascus always very helpfully summarizes all of the 600 centuries of Christian thinking into very concise wording. He says this, The natures of Christ, although united, are united without confusion, and although mutually imminent. You know what imminent means? It means like ever-present. Mutually ever-present with each other. Do not suffer any change or transformation of the one into the other. So in other words, there's such a perfect union between his humanity and his divinity, and yet in this union, none of them overcome each other. They're still distinct. He uses the word perichoresis when he talks about the union of these two natures. Perichoresis refers to mutual indwelling, a constant mutual indwelling. So God dwelling in man, man dwelling in God. That's what we have in Christ. He becomes, therefore, the actual model of what God is trying to do in all of his children. That's why it says in Hebrews, and we read in Psalm 22, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. That's why Romans says we are co-heirs. That means equal heirs with Christ of the Father's possessions. We have been elevated from mere mortals to being one with Christ. And somehow, our humanity hasn't been absorbed into the all being like in Buddhism. We're still human. This is why we say in the incarnation and in Christmas, salvation has come. It's not that it will eventually get here when Christ gets to the cross. By his becoming man, he's already begun the healing. All right, third, I said Mary We've three names. Uh, the New Eve, the Theotokos, and then this one. This one I just learned this, um, like, last month, and it boggles my mind. Mary's often known as, with the saying, as more spacious than the heavens. And the idea that her womb is more spacious than the heavens, why? Because the one who made the heavens is in her womb. Now consider this. Mary in our passage is represented as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that which God's presence dwelt on in Israel's temple. Mary has become a walking Ark of the Covenant. Look, not just conceptually, oh yeah, God's in her, of course that makes sense. No, Luke actually says nearly as much. If you look at verse 39, um, well, first of all, if you look at, at verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The, the terminology of shadow is, all of, is often in the Psalms, and it's the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, the angels on the Ark, their wings covering his people, the shadow of the wings. So there, that's, that's hinted at there. But then in verse 39, we read this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. Okay, so David, when he wanted to bring God's ark to Jerusalem, he had to move it up toward the hill country. Okay, so far a little bit of a stretch. I see the likeness, but the story is continued. In verse 42, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry. The Hebrew word there, anephoreneo, is rarely used. It's the only time it's used, exclaimed. Only time it's used here in the New Testament. It's used only four times in the Old Testament, and every single time it's used, it's always used in the priest's reaction to the Ark of the Covenant. When David brings the Ark up to Jerusalem, this word is used in the Greek translation, which Luke is reading. That word is used about the priests exalting the coming of the Ark. What is Luke telling us? Here comes the presence of God, no longer behind the veil, now in her whose womb is more spacious than the heavens. And uh, two more. Uh, uh, Elizabeth says in verse 43, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What did David ask? Remember when the ark couldn't quite get to Jerusalem? He asked, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth is now answering. How is this that the ark of my lord the mother of my lord shall come to me and then to continue the echoes which now are beginning to build a case here um, the last echo is in verse 56 mary remained with elizabeth about three months and returned to her home when the ark of the covenant didn't quite make it to jerusalem you might remember it rested in the house of a man named obed for three months that's awesome scripture is amazing so she's, on one hand, she's perceived as the Ark of the Covenant. On the other, she held in her womb he who holds the whole universe. So here's an ancient hymn. It, re, it sings this. He whom the entire universe could not contain was contained within your womb, O Theotokos. That's an ancient hymn. And now this is... Um, from the divine liturgy of saint basil the great basil the great i believe was the fourth century he said uh, it says this all of creation rejoices you O full of grace the ranks of angels and the human race hallowed temple and spiritual pure paradise hear that hallowed temple glory of virgins for you from you god was incarnate and he who is our God before the ages became a little child, for he made your body a throne and made your womb more spacious than the heavens. That's where the phrase comes from. All of creation rejoices in you, O full of grace. Isn't that amazing? Now, that, that language might be a little bit uncomfortably too close to Mary's wonderful language, but we have to remember that the early church venerated her as someone to look up to didn't quite worship her as a god although it's probably closer to more veneration than we're probably comfortable with but that's, that's the idea is that all of the universe that couldn't contain God that God is now contained in her womb that's what God was willing to do in coming to us and so um, in being more spacious in the heavens Mary becomes a symbol of the church in whom Christ dwells. So by saying she's more spacious than the heavens, it's not just that Christ, the creator, was in her, but it's also saying that there's now room, through her obedience to God, there's now room for millions of children to come into the life of Christ. So the church is more spacious than the heavens. I was uncomfortable studying Mary at first, but then I thought, wow, this really exalts the mystery of the Incarnation Christmas. And now I look at Mary, who was willing to be open to God, and it makes so much sense. In her openness, she became larger than herself. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to be larger than yourself. The person that we identify ourselves as, the person we see in the mirror, the person we've been struggling to be and become for all of our lives is far too small than what God has in mind for you. The reason we should be open with God is because he wants to open us up. He wants to free us. He wants to enable us to live enlarged in his life. So be open with God. This is how we prepare with Mary. Be open with God. We prayed this before we got to the passage tonight. John, we've been praying this all Advent. John says, look, God is light. And that means you walk in honesty with him. It means you walk admitting you're a sinner. It means you're no longer hiding like Adam and Eve. But like Mary And like the followers of Jesus and the church thereafter, we walk in the light and in fellowship with him because we recognize we can bring all of our sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can he cleanse us? Because that which he has assumed, he has healed. So let's be open with God. I I realize I'm a... I've taken so much of your time, so um, but we'll run through four. I'll try to make these brief. Four ways hinted at from Mary that we can be open with God. I'm going to skip the one that was a very tempting. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Mary wasn't actually filled with the Holy Spirit until she was open to God. And I thought about it, and like, that's actually true. We can't just cheaply apply it and say, just be filled with the power of God, and that'll do it all. Like That's what we're trying. We're trying to prepare ourselves to receive the power of God. So we need to understand, what does it take to be filled with the Spirit of God? That's what it means to open ourselves to him. So let's be open with God. First way to do this, what we see Mary before this scene even happened, it's very evident that Mary prayed the Psalms every day. She might have missed a day or two. But she prayed the Psalms earnestly and regularly. The song she sings in verses 47 through 55, like I pointed out to you, every single verse has a strong echo or quote from the Psalms themselves. That means in her spontaneous praise, she's someone who had the Psalms richly living in her. Um, just to give you an idea here, here are the psalms. I, hi- I have a, so, a mini cross-reference in my Bible, so I just went and I I highlighted all the psalms. Here they are. Psalm 34, verses 2 through 3. Psalm 35, verse 9. Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 72, verse 17. Psalm 89, verse 8. Psalm 71, verse 19. Psalm 126, verses 2 and 3. Um Oh, I actually missed some. Psalm 99, verse 3. Psalm 111, verse 9. Psalm 89, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 89, verse 10. Psalm 98, verse 1. Psalm 118, verse 16. Psalm 75, verse 7. Psalm 107, verse 40 and 41. Psalm 113, verse 7 and 8. Psalm 147, verse 6. Psalm 34, verse 10. Psalm 107, verse 9. I was like, hey, wait, 107.9. Psalm 98, verse 3. She was in tune. Psalm 132, verse 11. Like that was a lot. You get it? This woman, this girl 13. knew. Cool. Knew the Psalms. So William says that was 13. She was 13. Oh, oh, okay. I was like, there was more than 13, there wasn't there. <laughs> yes, she was 13. Yeah. And she was praying the Psalms. So uh 13 people even old. Okay, some of us think uh I don't need the Psalms in my life. Mary was 13. I was just looking at a couple teenagers, but if you're 30, 50, 70 brothers and sisters, you need the Psalms in your life. They're not just convenient comforts. As we've been exploring on Wednesday nights in our our prayer uh, group, we've been looking at the Psalms as a prayer book. We need a prayer book. Because without a prayer book, I just pray myself to God. It's self-expression to God. God's like, I know, I made you. I mean, I kind of want to hear. I kind of want you to come to me and be formed by me. And so I need a prayer book that takes me to God in a way that goes beyond myself. That's how I open up with God. I don't open up by just saying, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I'm praying. Because then I only pray for five minutes. Five minutes. But a prayer book like the Psalms pulls me in and it tells me who God wants me to be. It tells me who God is. It helps me to see him in a different way. It helps me get in touch with the different gifts that God's given me rather than just what I'm feeling up to. It's opening me up. The Psalms help us tell our secrets faithfully to God. Because if you notice, the Psalms hold nothing back. Yes. They hold nothing. They're uncomfortable. Some churches actually edit out certain verses because they're not... Fit for public reading. So I'll pray the Psalms every day. Number two, how to be open with God. Humble your heart. This is this is 101 Christianity. Humble your heart. Mary's prayer uh, song in verse 47-55 is a song of humility. You'll notice. In verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And verse, um, I usually highlight these things, and I didn't have time this week. Uh, 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Also, what he's she's doing here is she's quoting... Uh, a lot of this is also from, it's from the Psalms is also a mirror of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Hannah got a child. And the way Hannah says this is the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And so then Hannah, or uh, Sarah, uh, no, Mary, says um, he exalts those of humble estate. So it's not quite as graphic as Hannah's song, but this is where we want to be. If we want God to work powerfully in our lives, he's looking for the low. That's where his power comes. His power goes to those that are at the bottom and brings them up. The proud close their hearts off to God. What it actually means to be proud isn't like, I'm just some arrogant, egotistic, narcissistic person who just wants likes on Instagram. That's, that's not pride. I mean, it's a part of pride. Pride is believing that we're sufficient in ourselves. Humility is recognizing that I need another power in my life. Humility sits in the worst places of our lives and says, God, yep, it's here too. I'm opening up the most humble parts of myself to you. We often bring our best to God. Our best parts of us, I mean. But God wants all of us, even the humble, broken parts, because that's where his power shines. Paul says that his grace was made perfect, his power was made perfect in my weakness. That's why we want to humble our hearts. Mary was clearly a humble lady. And she's 13, so she probably doesn't think she's worth anything at this point. She's not even married. In, in Jewish society, she would just be seen as a nobody. You're not even married. You're just a... You're not anybody until you're married and have a kid. I'm not saying that's the right way to see a human, but that's the way the culture saw them, saw females. Um, so, Okay, so pray the Psalms every day. Humble your heart. And a third, open your heart with God by pursuing purity. Pursuing purity. We don't know a lot about Mary's life. Of course, there's some doctrines out there that say she was perfect, never sinned. Nah, sorry. Christ doesn't have a human nature if he took his nature from Mary and she was on, not a sinner. Um, but she was definitely pure. And what we mean by pure is we mean holy. Holy is not, I never sin. <laughs> and we think of holy with like these glowing halos and uh, holiness. And someone's like, I don't want that. That's not what holy means. Holy means set apart. And more specifically, what we mean by set apart is holy. to be holy is to be set apart for something. It's not to be set apart from something. It starts with that. Uh, so holiness is not, well, I just don't do anything in the world. I just kind of hide in my cave and I'm holy. What's set apart is for. We're set apart from something for something. And Mary was set apart for God. I know we're kind of implying this, but she was chosen and she was called favored, and so it seems that there was a setting apart of herself for God. And Jesus said, Matthew five eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can't be ready to receive Him if you don't even know what He, how He works, what He looks like. But the pure in heart are less familiar with sin and more familiar with the Spirit. And so they can recognize God in their lives. And perhaps that's why Mary is not shocked at the presence of an angel, but shocked at the message of the angel. And fourth, submit yourself as a servant. Very clearly, and the most climactic verse in this passage is verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can we have one condition here, Lord? Or maybe you can wait till I'm technically married so no one talks about this. Or that is the modern mindset, isn't it? Can we just tweak this to kind of fit with my five-year plan? Because you know you're kind of cramping my goal here. That's not the heart of a servant. She submits herself, all right, if this is what you want, this is what I want but we live in an age which preaches and instills in us through every conceivable example that's exalted in our culture that that is lame make something of yourself have a 5 year 10 year plan stick to your guns have goals cross out everything that doesn't help your goal okay look there are there's a lot of truth to some of this but what the what the christless culture does is it takes the best idea is a Christianity strips Christ from it and says, this is ultimate. And when you say this is ultimate and Christ isn't part of it, it's an idol. When we start to put our goals and visions and plans as the ultimate, without Christ, you have an idol. But we don't want Christ part of it because he might make me pregnant. Oh. So what's really, at, what the problem really is with our culture is that we don't want God telling us what to do we must get in the place where we say, yes, Lord, your will, your wish is my command. What a throwaway life, you might think. No, God has never done anything for anyone that brought them to be less than themselves. The reason we emphasize Mary as being more spacious than the heavens is because this is what God does with those who say, yes, your wish is my command. He makes more of us. There is no better way to live, there's no more blessed way to live than to say yes to whatever it is that God is asking of us to do. He's asking us to do it not because he gloats over saying, <laughs> pawns on the checkerboard, I'm so powerful. He gloats rather in seeing you live the way that he has designed you to live. That's why Mary says, all, all generations will call me blessed. And that's why all generations have to one degree or another, have called her blessed. It's because she has become the model for us of cooperation with God's operation. God does not force his power on his people. He does not overpower us. He empowers us. He must work in us before he works through us. And so his operations happen with our cooperation. Cooperation. His energy works with our synergy as we come alongside. This is how it works. Mary is the perfect example of someone who's willing to cooperate with what God's power is trying to do. That's why we look at Mary. That's why we see her say, I am your servant. That's why we want to submit ourselves as servants. So be open with God. Pray the Psalms. They will open you up. Humble your heart, that's where God gets in and comes out. Pursue purity, so you understand what he looks like, and submit yourself as a servant. And we will live open with God, which will prepare our hearts to receive his power, which will then cause him to do his impossible work in us, and then ultimately through us. That's how we say, when Christ asks, do you believe I can do this? And we can say, Yes, that's what Mary said. That's what we're trying to grow toward. Let's pray.